Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Munnies has been tracking dozens of bills regarding the state's five-year-old medical marijuana industry. Uh, Those bills are still pending in the Oklahoma legislature. Paul, it's been a month since voters rejected recreational marijuana, as outlined in State Question 820. What's the theme of these bills at the Capitol that are still kicking around? Yeah, so about a month ago, voters rejected that state question for legal adult use cannabis, uh, 62% no, 38% yes. Uh, Some lawmakers kind of took that as a sign that they should kind of go further into enforcing the existing medical marijuana market. And so a lot of the bills are focusing on that and especially on the illicit grows that are out there across the state. How many bills are, are still alive? So we're tracking more than two dozen, about 27 or so that we've, we've picked up after this first major deadline where bills have to leave the, the chamber of origin. And what didn't make it past uh, the first big legislative hurdle? Yeah, so some some of the detractors um, in the industry are kind of saying that, well, they didn't look at some of the patient-focused ones that were, were proposed, including one that would have uh, had a special license for out-of-state residents to come to take advantage of the medical marijuana market in Oklahoma. And there was also one just for full straight-up legalization of the adult market that was pretty much outlined in the state question, but that voters rejected. Now, who are some of the lawmakers uh, at the forefront here with these med- medical marijuana bills? Yeah, it's kind of changed over the years. In the last year or so, um, Senator Jessica Garvin uh, has kind of taken the mantle on the Senate side to shepherd some of these things for, through. She's got about uh, six bills that are still alive and are over in the House and various committees at this point. Uh, other folks involved in this are Representative T.J. Marty, uh, Representative Scott Fettgatter, and the uh, House uh, Majority Floor Leader, uh, John Eccles. Now, uh, several bills focus on the problems stemming from the illegal market, don't they? That's right. Yeah, there's several that would kind of crack down on these so-called ghost owners where uh, Oklahoma has kind of a requirement for any owner of a commercial business in medical marijuana to have 75% of the ownership in Oklahoma itself uh, and 25% can be from out of state. Uh, there's been some issues in paperwork uh, filing and kind of uh, straw owners, ghost owners, where people are paying folks to kind of be that 75% interest and then they have nothing to do with the business whatsoever in the operation. And so uh, the Office of Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs is cracking down on that. Uh, the Attorney General is cracking down on that. And on the administrative side, uh, Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority itself is also cracking down on kind of the the civil side of that, too. And how about police agencies? What does law enforcement say about that rise in illicit marijuana grows? Yeah, so obviously there's been a market in Oklahoma for medical marijuana on the illegal side for quite a while. We've had raids going back to, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, So there's nothing new on the illicit. Now, what the... The medical side has given kind of some cover to some folks coming in. And so especially the attorney general and the Office of uh, Bureau of Narcotics um, has said that that has allowed some uh, bad actors, including some from other countries, uh, various cartels from uh, Russia, uh, Mexico, China, who are, are hiring folks and also uh, including that in other illicit drug sales and uh, human trafficking as well. Now, the uh, state's regulating agency, the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, is also looking at ways to enforce some of this on the civil side. Isn't that right? 
That's right. They kind of scored a kind of major victory on uh, their administrative law side. Um, they basically had were able to look at some of the renewals for some of these applications. And keep in mind that there is a moratorium on new licenses right now for the commercial side. Patients still can still get a license, but any new business cannot get a license until 2024. But you're still allowed to renew if you're an existing business. And they went back and looked through some paperwork at renewal time and saw some common ownership of folks who were not uh, Oklahoma citizens on that 75% ownership side and successfully seized the, uh, the operation and shut it down. They said that kind of gives them a green flag to go through through all the rest of the records and kind of see similar types of things going on as well. All right. Now, what other marijuana-related bills caught your eye while you were reporting this? Yeah, so there's several that would, um, one would limit kind of the, the THC, which is the kind of mind-altering part of marijuana, uh, the content of that over the years. Uh, you know, this is not your your light kind of ditch weed used to get maybe in the 70s or 80s. It's very strong in some of these strains. Uh, one of these bills limits those THC THC contents, uh, especially in the minor market, you have to have right now two physicians to recommend for a minor as well as a parental position, phys- parental permission as well. Um, that would limit some of that and would limit uh, the smoking and vaping of mer- medical marijuana in the minor market too. Um, there's also a couple others that just kind of clean up some stuff. Uh, one that caught my eye especially was one that uh, would force any kind of elected or appointed official to disclose any interest in a medical marijuana business uh, to the uh, the two authorities, which was interesting because you've kind of seen maybe some folks uh, in positions of power or, or legislative activities that might have some ownership stakes that we don't know about. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's uh, coverage of those medical marijuana-related bills during this legislative session at our website, oklahomawatch.org. I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She recently wrote about why last year's school report cards have been delayed. Jennifer, what's going on with the report cards and why are they late this year? Well, that's a question I've been trying to answer. Um, We, of course, had a couple of years with no report cards due to COVID. Um, The 2022 report cards were supposed to come out um, in December or at least by the end of last year, uh, still have not been released And I did find out that the State Department of Education notified school districts recently that there was a calculation error that was made in um, calculating the letter grades. And so that has been holding them up. Has the State Department of Education explained how the error occurred? No, they haven't. Um, The school leaders I talked to did not really understand The letter said that the State Department would honor the previous grade. Some school leaders that I talked to weren't sure if that meant they had to keep the former grade or if they would keep the better of the two. Like, say, they had a middle school that went from an F to a D. Could they they choose? Could they, um, you know, did they have to keep the F? Um, That was kind of some questions that have yet to be answered I reached out to the department um, and state superintendent Ryan Walters multiple times. Uh, Well, I reached out to him and his press secretary and have not gotten any clarification on what that letter exactly means. What kind of information do those report cards contain? There's lots of really rich data um, that are in these report cards that, of course, uh, you know, journalists like myself really rely on. I'm a bit of a data nerd. 
Um, you know, there are things like academic achievement. Um, there's academic growth, which is um, important um, to show, you know, as shows a school, how well a school is educating the kids and bringing them up. Um, there's chronic absenteeism, um, which is an important measure. And, you know, the report cards now are set up in a way where you can look at specific subgroups um, by race um, and by income and things like that. So you can really drill down into how well a school is, um, you know, uh, performing with certain groups of students. Now, the most controversial part of those, though, are the A through F grades, right? That's right. And there are plenty of critics of um, of the A through F. Not every state does it that way. You know, the, the data part of the report card is, is required. The A through F part is not required. Um, but Oklahoma has stuck with it, um, despite the controversy. Um, there are certainly some schools who don't like that. Um, but they say it's easy for parents to understand. Now, what's riding on these report cards this year? Well, a few things. I mean, first of all, you know, we haven't had them in a couple years and we're in a recovery mode after COVID. Uh, you know, a lot of students lost uh, learning time when schools were closed and or they were learning from home um, or they were quarantined. And, you know, there was just a lot of disruption. So I feel like it's critically important to see kind of where kids are at now and, and how schools are, are doing getting them up. Um, there is also a financial piece. Um, schools that uh, receive an F get extra funding in order to provide more resources to improve their academics. Um, so that's part of it as well. Is there any kind of a deadline? So the federal government requires states to publish their report cards annually. It doesn't say at what point. Um, I mean, I guess you could argue that these are the tests that were taken last April. So here we are in April at state testing time again. Um, but no, they don't have a specific calendar deadline. Uh, what surprised you while you were working on this story? I think the aspect that the State Department said they would honor the previous grade. Um, you know, some of the folks that I interviewed say that really undermines the whole system. If the point of it is to provide accurate information, especially to parents this time of year, they may be um, co considering a different school. They may be looking for this information to help them, you know, especially open transfer uh, law passed a few years ago, expanded students' ability to go to different schools. Um, so if what they're saying is that they will be putting up a grade that does not accurately reflect where the school falls in the spectrum of A through F, just because it was miscalculated previously, um, I mean, I think that's problematic. What happens next? I do expect the report cards to be released pretty soon. The letter that the State Department sent out to school districts gave them until uh, this week, uh, Monday, actually, to make changes and to look at their final grade. And if that's the only thing holding it up, then they should come out and be available. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read Jennifer's coverage of the problems with the A through F grading system this year, as well as all her work on uh, education in Oklahoma at our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. 
Reporter Paul Money's recently covered the latest report by a legislative watchdog looking at how many state agencies claim exemptions to the state's rules when they buy goods and services. Uh, Paul, what was the main takeaway from that report? Yeah, so this report by the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, Transparency, excuse me, uh, looked at kind of all the purchases that go through state government. Um, and they basically found that um, various agencies have either agency-wide exemptions to go through these state purchasing laws or uh, parts of their, their functions are, are exempt from the law itself. Um, and so they, they found that basically these agencies are self-certifying and no one is checking that and that they're basically policing themselves. Can you put some of those purchases into perspective with overall state spending? Yeah, so this report looked at everything that's kind of coming through the state's financial system, um, and it's, that does not include uh, the huge chunks of money that go through the higher ed system. Uh, so it didn't look that, at that at all in this report, but it said that uh, in fiscal year 2022, there was about $538 million that actually went through the Central Purchasing Act, and another $3 billion were in exempt purchases. Well, so give us a quick history of these state purchasing laws. They weren't uh, put in place to frustrate state employees or bureaucrats, right? That's right. Yeah, this, there's kind of a long history um, on why these laws are in place right now. Uh, going back to 1959, uh, there was a lot of issues with uh, some of the subjective contracting of state ish, state bids, uh, you know, kind of brother-in-law deals, stuff that we've kind of seen over, over time. And so they put in some of these laws, and that's when the Central Purchasing Act was first enacted. And, of course, it was further strengthened in the 1970s after a statewide huge county commission scandal that went into some of the purchasing of road construction equipment and, and roads stuff. So that, that was another reason to kind of tighten those laws. So th that's, that's the reason why they're there in the first place. Now, over the years, um, agencies have been frustrated by some of the slow pace of these purchasing requirements. Uh, and in fact, they, they claim that there's about a, a 90 to 100 days from start to finish on going through these, this act. And there's like a 61 point checklist to go through this act that you have to check all these boxes. And so that's why these agencies over time have asked for the, these uh, exemptions from the legislature and gotten them. So it's not just all of a sudden, it's been happening for a number of decades and years. Now, this uh, legislative watchdog organization looked at the purchasing and audit functions of the Office of Management and Enterprise Services, OMES. What is that agency and how did they respond to the report? Yeah, so that, that's a kind of a super agency in state government that was basically created, um, you know, about uh, 10, 12 years ago. They consolidated former parts of state government that involved uh, inf information technology purchasing, purchasing for other goods and services out, outside of IT, uh, budget functions, uh, human resource functions, and of course, um, kind of finance functions for just keeping track of state money. Uh, they put it all into one agency uh, called OMES, and that is now in part of the uh, Central Purchasing Act. They, they do a lot of the policing and audit of uh, purchase cards that state agencies have as well. Uh, and they basically mostly agreed with a lot of the conclusions of this report. They had some things back and forth that they didn't agree on in terms of how they would enforce purchases outside of, uh, the, the, outside of the exemptions. But other than that, they said, yes, we need more teeth. We need the legislature to help us out here. This has got to be such a big problem. Now, the report mentioned some purchases at the tourism department, and it's uh, infamous contract with a barbecue restaurant. That deal is now being investigated by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, right? That's right. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, controversy over the Swadley's contract that uh, 
State Department of Tourism had at all the state parks. Um, that was kind of a, a sweetheart deal for that contractor. They got to do the restaurants, of course, uh, and then they did their own kind of construction and updates on some of that those buildings as well that they got to be managers of. And that was all done without any huge kind of bidding. And the agency declared itself exempt from the, the Central Purchasing Act in order to do that. But at the same time, um, the Loft Report noted that um, the tourism department was going through a purchase card audit, looking at all the purchases, found some issues there. Uh, and, you know, the law folks were like, why weren't you also looking at these other things? And basically the, the, the OMES said, well, we weren't allowed to because they declared themselves exempt. So the purchase card audit found some issues with uh, spending state money on alcohol, which is a no-no, and also splitting up purchases so you could get over the limits for purchase cards. And, the, you know, the, the agency itself basically agreed with that purchase card audit. But at the same time, there was a huge thing that nobody knew about on the state park restaurant deal with Swadley's. Now, what other agencies were singled out in the report? So I looked at several other agencies as well as kind of the response to previous audits. In fact, it looked at the Office of Juvenile Affairs. They had kind of a, a purchasing audit, audit that they went through. Um, they found some issues there um, that mostly the, the office agreed with. But at the same time, some of the recommendations they just kind of ignored or didn't do anything about after, you know, several years of review. Uh, they also looked at, at some uh, purchases at the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, similar issues where they basically had a findings that, you know, this is not right under the Central Purchasing Act. An agency said, well, we don't agree. We're exempt. Sorry. And go away, please. Uh, that was kind of the takeaway that I got from the report. Oh, Governor Kevin Stitt's administration has used these agency exceptions uh, exemptions quite a bit, right? Uh, why has he done that? And what does he say now about those exemptions? That's right. Yeah, if you remember back when the COVID um, started going about three years ago, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of money coming through from the federal government under the CARES Act. Uh, a lot of stuff had to get out the door quickly. Uh, the state's emergency order uh for public health exempted a lot of these things from the regular review and a lot of these things got you know no bid deals done to do it quickly essentially but um you know that had that also continued after the state's emergency ended uh, in fact the fiscal year after that emergency ended there was another 500 and something million dollars in emergency purchases that were way more than uh, had been in previous years and so um you know state for his part has said, well, we want to get rid of all exemptions, uh, but his, his um, administration did use them quite a bit in the first term too, partly out of necessity, but partly because to, they wanted to speed things up and get around this central purchasing act. All right. And, you know, Paul, I think just to, if we were to put the, the issue here in a nutshell, uh, as I understand it, there's a um, a law theoretically that says uh, all state purchases have to go through one place so that we avoid uh, brother-in-law deals and and uh, potential corruption, right? But that uh, it's now evolved to a point where uh, only about one sixth of the state purchases are actually going through that system, uh, and the other uh, eighty-something percent are going around it using exemptions to that. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, that's exactly what's happened over the years. Ex agencies have asked for exemptions for whatever reason; they've gotten them. Uh, no one really looks into when they declare an exemption or if they should or, or not on a certain purchase. And it's basically self-policing and things are not uncovered at the right time. And that's why we've got issues like Swadley's that come up. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's uh, coverage on that Loft Report and his other work from the Capitol at our website, oklahomawatch.org. 
You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.